Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. Okay, on this episode, I'm joined by Brianna Bacon and Julia Schroeder, marketing intelligence leaders at Methods and Mastery. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Of course, happy to be here. So excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, so I usually open up these episodes by going back to the beginning. I, I want to kind of give listeners an understanding of, of both of your backgrounds, you know, how your career journey has kind of progressed to date. So Brianna, maybe I'll start with you. I'd love to get an understanding of, of how, how your career has gone and how you ended up at Methods and Mastery. Yeah, so it's kind of a windy road. I started off in journalism, actually. I was very sure I wanted to be a sports journalist. I have a degree from journalism from University of Maryland. My first job out of college was writing for NCAA.com and PGA.com. I very soon realized that I didn't want to write sports <laughs> anymore. <laughs> so I realized it was time for a pivot. Around that time, I think the business of social media was kind of starting to become a little bit more prominent. And um, one of my mentors actually was telling me, you know, you should get a job in social media. And I was like... I don't know about that. I don't know how lucrative that is. But long story short, I ended up getting a job with Mars Wrigley Confectionery. So like the candy company doing social media analytics. I kind of maxed out my potential there and started to look for more opportunities. And, you know, by some stretch of grace, I ended up at Medicine Mastery with my fellow nerds. And now I get to do what I love every day with people who I really enjoy and super smart people on a really talented team. So that's how I got here. That's awesome. What about you, Julia? Um, Similar, maybe a little less windy. I studied public communications and marketing in college, which is more or less the field that I pretty much operated and have operated in since. Um, I did have a little bit of a similar reckoning uh, to you, Brie, where I was like, do I hate PR? Do I hate marketing? (laughs) And I think it was because I was working and studying largely in traditional PR, um, you know, like pitching media, managing relationships with reporters and all of that good stuff. Um, And it wasn't until I got a really great internship in, I think it was called integrated communications at the time, which really just meant integrated marketing. So paid media, looking at the full kind of suite of the peso model. And it was then I was like, oh, I kind of think I love this area, which is a lot more results focused, a lot more tangible and data centric. From there, I have been an agency baby ever since. I've never worked in-house maybe one day, but I love the agency world. And I've always worked kind of in the quote unquote digital arm of my companies. So when I first started was much more general doing everything from website builds to SEO, to paid media, to social listening. I then later in a, a, another stage of my career transferred more into the paid media end of the spectrum. So both concepting and executing campaigns as well as reporting on them and optimizing them, which was a really cool kind of 360 view of how campaigns work. And then finally ended up at M&M, which I think has been a really fantastic culmination of all of those experiences. A lot more in the research world, but blended with strategy. So everything that we do is kind of tailored to how can a business improve or grow or meet its goals uh, within a marketing capacity and really reaching into any tool in our toolkit to get there. 
Super interesting. I think both of you, what, what strikes me is I feel like the first part that Brie kind of mentioned around her career, I know a lot of journalists that have ended up in, in marketing, which is kind of funny. And then I know a lot of marketers who, who studied marketing in there and some of them aren't in marketing or some of them do end up. I find it's kind of like a, not a ton of them actually do end up in marketing. So it's interesting to see that you kind of both landed here. As we kind of dive into the topic of this episode, it was kind of sparked by a, a piece of work that we saw. And it was a white paper that your team put together about the secret language of fandoms. And so we're going to link that in the show notes below to, to the listeners. But can you kind of start by telling us how did this report come to be? And Julia, we'll start with you. Sure. Social intelligence and audience intelligence is really what Methods of Mastery does best. It's kind of what we do every single day. Even if we're analyzing, you know, kind of more of an evergreen topic, it's still being talked about by an audience. And kind of that means lens is always something that's interesting to us. What makes them tick? What triggers certain responses? um, And how can we learn more about their behaviors and maybe their thought process via what they talk about? It's funny, a lot of the times in our like social analyses, when we're looking at a conversation, fandoms, whether related to the topic or not, will have a way of infiltrating the conversation and we'll have to do some fun creative hacking to either, you know, remove them because it's not related, but they found their way in. So it just seemed like a really natural extension for us to dive deeper into. We're already kind of in the audience mindset on a day-to-day basis and just exploring it more in depth was something that we knew we wanted to tackle for a while. Mm-hmm. And I guess like one of the things that when I, when I kind of first hear the word fandom, I think of sports specifically, right? Like sports fandom, but y'all have kind of uncovered that it, it, it means so much more than that. You can kind of apply fandom to many things. Bree, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the idea of fandom spans across anything really that people can enjoy. Like you said, with sports, it can go into music, television shows, and like people will probably read in our research, it even goes into entities like Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. There is a, I think Julia can talk a lot more about the spectrum, like how fandoms exist on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And of course, within that spectrum, there are negative examples of fandoms you have like Nicki Minaj and her barbs which can get out of very much so out of control (laughs) or you have like positive examples of fans like for example the free britney movement so they really do exist on a spectrum and exist literally across the gamut of anything that people could possibly enjoy from sports to tv shows to even i think some games like for example like uno has fans and legos and stuff like that so all over the place, you can find fandoms of any kind that exists exists across the spectrum of like extremism. I'll yeah, say. it's funny you mentioned that. And like before we kind of go into that that spectrum and Julia, I'll come back to that. I, I think about and this is like a personal aside and you guys are probably going to think this is ridiculous. I find that I kind of get I discover new fandoms of my own, specifically on TikTok. This is going pretty nerdy. I love apparently I've learned I love watching power washing videos on TikTok. A guy or a girl takes their phone, puts on a tripod and power washes their driveway by time-lapse. I'm just like, I love this. I don't, oh, yeah. I, not that I want to do it, but just more so I'm like, that's so like satisfying. Clean talk yeah. is very, very therapeutic. Clean, clean talk. <laughs> yeah. So like, I don't know, like I, I just wanted to kind of like explain that, that like, yeah, there are these random things. And I, I think I, I've seen that in my own life. And there are probably listeners who are listening to this going like, oh shit. Yeah. Like 
there is this thing that's like oddly satisfying that I watch, or, you know, there is this thing that like is super, super niche, but that goes really deep and like, Hey, I'm not the only person that, that loves this stuff and, and consumes this stuff. Yeah, honestly, I'm the same way because you know, those videos of like tiny kitchens and stuff like that. I'm a watcher of those. Most people now we're getting into it. Stuff. Now we're getting into the deep I stuff here. I like this. Videos. I love the little tiny kitchen. It makes absolutely no sense to me, but I am so fascinated by the way they cook like literally can cook full-blown meals that are meant for mice. I mean, it, it blows my mind, honestly. Julia, do you have anything you want to share? Do you want to kind of talk more about the broad spectrum of fandoms? Oh God, I mean, I don't want to embarrass myself too much, but <laughs> no, I, I think that's a perfect example of it though. Um, fandoms can be small or large and regardless of their size, I think that constituents who make up that fandom can very much operate on a scale. And in our um, research, we kind of put it on this sliding scale of devotion where you could be kind of an apathetic, maybe a bystander. Maybe it's like you, you see the power washing videos that come on your for you page and you like it and you keep swiping. And then there's other people who like, that's their whole life. And maybe that's like their therapy and how they wind down for the day. And they really take a lot of pride in maybe crafting that content or um, sharing that content, sometimes gatekeeping that content. It really is kind of um, a spectrum of how devoted you want to be. And in the most extreme cases, like the barbs, as Brie just mentioned, it can almost get into like cult-like territories where Mm -hmm. we're seeing people really subscribe to the beliefs and values of the quote-unquote kind of figurehead of that fandom Mm -hmm. um, and tabling maybe their own beliefs systems in favor of the fandom's belief systems yeah which is an interesting an interesting change that i think social media in particular has really really fostered yeah and i want to expand on that we've obviously kind of gone through social has been isn't necessarily a new thing but it also is a new thing we're what 10 15 years into this thing really that is is social media so yeah that's a long time especially in like an internet minute but also in the grand scheme of things like where was television at when it was 10 or 15 years old, right? Like we are in its infancy. What do you think have been kind of like the big drivers of change in regards to like what it means to be a fan in kind of the last five to 10 years with social? And I have kind of something that I can share, but I'd be curious to get your take on it in that I feel like a lot of this kind of like deep fandom stuff used to kind of be more hidden in different kind of corners of the internet on deep forums or Reddit, like that sort of thing. And now it appears a lot of these platforms... TikTok, Snap, Reels on Instagram, wherever, Facebook groups, all that is kind of being like brought more up to the surface. What, what do you think about that? So I think one thing that you touched on is kind of everything being brought to the surface. I think, you know, back in, I'll say back in the day, um, people were, like you said, hidden in the crevices of like forums, like essentially in the dark. But now when you have social media, you have, you know, basically news coming at you in all forms on all platforms 24 7 about anybody anybody or anything that fandoms can create themselves around people start to feel like they have these parasocial relationships with these figureheads or these entities and they start to feel a little bit closer to them so just like julie was saying before with like kind of this cult-like idea and mindset and fandoms when you start to feel like you're closer to these celebrities or these brands or whatever you start to get a little feel like you know, you have a little bit more or a little bit less space between you so that you can reach out and touch it. But that kind of breeds a negative 
type of thing too. There are positives, but it does breed a little bit of negativity with harassment of other people who may not be in your fandom to harassment of the, the person, the target of the fandom themselves. Uh, what comes to mind is like Rihanna's fans, the Navy, harassing her constantly about this album while she's, you know, trying to live her best life, her best billionaire life. And kind of like the rise of anti-fandoms. You know, you have some people who think fandoms are absolutely insane and think these people are super unhinged. So that those two groups can go back and forth. But I think that there is also a positive, but of course, when you have that large group of people with that same kind of hive mindset, it is very easy for it to go left and for harassment to go forth or bullying or just all around craziness, I would say, mm -hmm. for fandoms and the fact that social media has kind of created this portal where people think that that is real life and that whatever happens on social it makes you closer to whoever is on it that's created sort of a dangerous aspect which can be a tad bit scary but i mean there are some positive aspects to social media with fandoms yeah and i would add to that just on why we've seen it taken off even before forums like irl meetups i think the star trek community was one of the mm. first examples of a real fandom in the traditional sense that's like documented and you can refer back to the actual like IRL origins of how the fandom began. And at this point, it's no longer nerdy to be a fan of something. Um, it really is your identity. And now so much of your identity is really based on how you present online. Mm -hmm. So sharing what you like, bonding over what you like and finding your people is kind of almost table stakes expectations mm -hmm. at this point, rather than something that was potentially embarrassing or <laughs> you wanted to hide away as like a nerdy aspect of who you are. And that's very much celebrated and kind of expected to be celebrated at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually just watched and personal anecdote here again, here we go. I just watched the, the Harry Potter HBO uh, reunion and yes, in, you're in, a Harry Potter fan. Right? So, so <laughs> Yeah, I grew up, I read the books. I wouldn't consider myself like a crazy super fan. I've read the books, I've watched the movies, I'm down with it. So, so on that spectrum, I'm like probably somewhere in the middle. However, what was fascinating was they showed footage of kind of like Potter mania when it first happened. And looking back to the lineups outside the bookstores, you know, when drops were happening and I was just like, whoa, it kind of made me pause and kind of think back to, okay, the only other times where I've seen this was like the Harry Potter book, the iPhone, right? Like there's a few of these kind of like pillar products or, or things that, you know, created this kind of demand that brought in all, all different walks of life. Do you think those have kind of played a role in, in shaping fandom as we kind of see it today? I would say absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just there, those are all showings of connectivity and bond. It's really interesting now to think about it in the context of COVID, right? Because mm -hmm. like, I don't know who's going to the midnight premiere. I don't think there are <laughs> midnight premieres anymore. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> but at its core, it's very similar to what we see happening online. They're mm -hmm. just showing up to celebrate and enjoy as a group the thing that they're bonding over, you know? I'm sure if social media existed back then, it would be the same thing. Um, but this is just like a natural online extension of you going to the midnight premiere or the book signing at the Barnes and Nobles with the cast. <laughs> mm -hmm. And with community, it really is built on uh, the sense of community. You know, I think it's human nature for people to try to bond over things that they like. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to, you know, what you said about people from all walks of life, 
you know, gathering together around this one common thing, you know, um, and I think that's probably one of the more positive parts of social media and its effect on fandoms. I listen to a podcast called True Crime Obsessed. And, you know, they have a Facebook group and they always talk about on the podcast how, you know, you can find your people in the Facebook group. And some of them have like the Facebook group itself is facilitated by the podcast and the podcast hosts. But they the people in the podcast have created like area specific groups for the podcast, you know, and I recently found out even somebody that I work with is a fan of the podcast. So, you know, that sense of community is very important when Mm -hmm. it comes to fandoms and having that on social media where everything and everyone is at your fingertips has made it that much easier. Yeah. I want to talk about language, like how language plays into that a little bit. Cause I feel like, you know, there is like these groups of people that are being brought together by a certain thing, whether it's a product an experience a, a piece of content an interest, when we think about language um, and we think about like the language being used to talk about these things, how important is that for brands to understand that? Is the juice worth the squeeze to go out there and, and understand that language? Yes. And probably more than ever before where there is so much conversation happening a million miles a minute all the time online and not having a direct line into what that looks like, what people are talking about and how your brand is being perceived by the fandom that you're trying to connect with, uh, you're losing out on a ton of intel. You're, you're leaving it all on the table. We get into our research, and I, I think it's a really interesting and, and applicable quote from uh, Amanda Montel. She's the author of the book Cultish, and she posits that language is the medium through which ideology is created and disseminated, and without it, there are no beliefs, no cults at all. And we thought this was so interesting because, again, Fandoms are kind of like cults. They're they're bonded by the uh, ability to communicate and share. And via that, this kind of like almost insider in-group membership is created. It, it says you're with us, you're not with them, right? So if you're a brand and you are not picking up on the specific language cues of how a fandom operates, you don't know them. You don't know your, their psyche. You don't know what makes them tick. And therefore you really can't market to them effectively. Mm-hmm. And then to to go off of that too, there's a nuance with the language too. Honestly, you can language can be captured within. I think we touched on this in the in the research too. It can be captured between not just words but pictures with memes, the emergence of memes, the emergence of inside jokes. All of that stuff is nuanced between the language, and I think that also has to do with the fact that these brands and companies and entities have to be up to date, not only on what their fans are talking about, but also what everyone else is talking about as well. Because, you know, these fans are not just necessarily just fans of that brand or that entity or that person. They're also part of other fandoms as well. So they'll probably bring language or memes or whatever from other fandoms and probably try to adapt them and integrate them into the fandom that they are currently in the one that we're speaking of now you know Mm -hmm. so I think that you have to be as a brand and as marketers you kind of have to be aware of everything not just what pertains to your brand yeah that makes a lot of sense and so what would kind of be your advice to marketers like if marketers are kind of sitting there going like okay yeah you know I know we need to focus on on building community nurturing community but like in terms of communication specifically and kind of like decoding that what is kind of the key to, to understanding that? Obviously, you know, y'all at Methods Mastery have like nuanced methodologies to do that, that require data and tools. 
But what are some important things for marketers to consider when kind of getting started to dig for this kind of language to, to kind of inform them? I wanted to hit on your comment in there about like tools. Obviously we use mm. scaled social listening at Methods of Mastery, but if yeah. you're a community manager or you're a brand and you're first starting out, maybe you don't have a huge marketing budget and you don't have the ability to invest in something like that. You really don't need it to get a really strong foundation around a given fandom's language. Make some Twitter lists, identify the key opinion formers and influencers within a specific fandom or community and listen to them specifically. Isolate those conversations, given free tools, and really go in with a curious mindset to understand when are they talking? What are they talking about? Why are there specific kind of sub or meta themes that are driving some of these conversations? Um, in the example in our research, when we looked at the Witcher's fandom, we found an immense amount of conversation related to mental health. What does mental health have to do with a fantasy franchise? Nothing, but it kind of is the common glue that bound that fandom together. You really wouldn't pick up on that if you were just specifically looking for the key character names of the Witcher or the episode names of the Witcher. You really have to look at who are the core talkers, I guess, within a specific community. Mm -hmm. Who are they influencing and what are the themes that are driving and catalyzing those conversations? Also, I think one thing that uh, marketers really need to be aware of is that marketing alone can build a fandom. Honestly, you can foster it, but the product really has to be the foundation on which the, the fandom is built on. And also, they need to be aware that, that a lot of these fandoms are self-sufficient. You know, if you look at most fandoms, they put themselves together without any help of anybody who is involved with whatever they're rallying around. You brought up the Harry Potter franchise. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the doing of J.K. Yeah. Rowling or, or Dan Radcliffe or Emma. You know, that wasn't the doing. That was just people who were consuming the product mm -hmm. and they created a fandom themselves. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that is very important. They're self-sufficient, but they need to understand the nature and the influence of their fans before mm -hmm. they can create the strategies around interacting with them. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You're absolutely right. Yeah, there probably wasn't a marketing mind sitting there being like, oh, yeah, we're going to get people to line up at midnight. That's really the thing. It's more so they realized they had the demand because of the product and then said, OK, what can we do to enable people to get together and, and celebrate this thing? I want to switch gears here and kind of talk about the, the white paper a little bit. I'd like to get an answer from each of you on this. What are kind of the findings that maybe stood out to each of you? Is it something that you're proud of or something that you're surprised with or something that shocked you? We'll start with you, Brie. I think one thing that stood out to me is that some people were kind of roped into the fandom, I found, uh, doing the research by proxy. Like, for example, for the Elon Musk one, I found an article about, I think it was a woman out on the West Coast who was not an Elon Musk fan. She just liked Tesla's. And hmm. by doing more research on Tesla's, she started to learn more about Elon Musk and stumbled upon Elon Musk fandoms and ultimately became a musketeer. <laughs> and I thought that was the weirdest thing in the world, how like, you know, you never, it's literally a slippery slope to, to being in a fandom. You could like something that is just like arbitrarily remotely, you know, related to whatever the fandom is and find yourself fully immersed in it and fully immersed in the language that they use. So, so much so that you start using that and integrating that into your everyday life. Because I personally didn't realize how, slippery of a slope it was because like myself I personally am part of the beehive I'm a huge Beyonce fan and you know I think that kind of the parallel there is if 
you like Solange, who is Beyonce's sister, if you like her, start doing some research on her, then start getting into Destiny's Child and her appearances on music there. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, wanting more music from Beyonce. You know what I'm saying? And being yeah. part of Beyonce. So I think seeing the, the correlation between people who have like, were just on the outskirts and then the language kind of sucked them in was so interesting to see for me. Hmm, that's fascinating. What about you, Julia? Yeah, I think our core hypothesis going into this, the, the research is called the secret language of fandoms. And we had originally hypothesized that kind of code speak, right? The stuff that only the beehive talks about or the words and phrases that they use. We thought that that was going to like dominate and be the defining factor of any fandom that we looked at, right? It's the specific terms and phrases that only Trekkies know. And we kind of found almost the opposite when we looked at specifically the case study of Wall Street bets. And if you recall the GameStop. To the moon. Yes, to the moon, exactly. Uh, We we, we chose that intentionally because they have so many niche phrases that completely took over the internet like wildfire Mm -hmm. during all of the stock fiasco. And when we looked at their subreddit and we looked at the period of time that the GameStop AMC phenomenon was happening and we looked at the tracked niche, what we thought were like the niche terms. So like the to the moons, the diamond hands, the paper hands, any of those terms that they specifically use, found it was only present in 8% of the most upvoted separate posts from that time. And we were shaking our, we were scratching our heads at that, like 8% feels low. Mm-hmm. And that really was kind of like the floodgates that opened for us where we're like, oh, well, maybe code speak isn't what defines a fandom in their language. It's more about the context, the shared belief systems, and how that kind of comes through in a more meta, almost contextual POV, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the specific code speak that they use. So while they might be identified by that externally, it's really not what makes up the bulk of their conversation and their language pattern. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Really fascinating. That surprised me, actually, hearing that. I want to switch gears here a little bit more. You both are in a unique position in that you're you're focused on research. And a lot of marketers that I interact with, they either sit on the agency side and they're executing or they're on the brand side and they're executing. Researchers are, are kind of rare that I get to talk to other researchers. All of that said, you probably have a unique view on this. What are you most excited about when it comes to marketing in 2022 and beyond, right? Like you have access to so many different things and you're constantly digging. What are the things that get you fired up? We'll start with you, Bree. I think probably the things that are probably most exciting when it comes to marketing today is the fact that things like this, this research into fandoms is probably going to help these brands figure out a lot more innovative ways to connect and eventually to to sell product. You know, you have to be, these brands have to identify or be identifiable to the people that they're trying to sell to or trying to reach. And I think the opportunity for innovation is probably greater than it's ever been. Honestly, just the expansion of like social platforms, I think is probably going to be one of the major things that happens to marketing over the next 10 years. We saw the blow up of TikTok and it's only a matter of time when another, you know, platform comes and runs the world. So I think just really the innovation and the opportunity to connect more with the people that you're marketing to, um, that's probably what I'm most excited about. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What about you, Julia? Well, one, retweet all of that. I was so, I'm like <laughs> so happy to see. It's encouraging to see brands like understand TikTok at this point. It's also like kind of concerning because it's like, oh, the parents are <laughs> the at the party. Everything. 
<laughs> right. The parents have arrived. But that being said, I do think honestly now more than ever before, and I think TikTok ironically has helped this. I think individuality in marketing is at an all-time high and it's expected and celebrated. Like if you think back 10 years ago, I feel like every brand's tone of voice, maybe that's a little extreme. Most brands tone of voice <laughs> was really similar. It was so stale. It was very safe, very kind of, I'm a brand's beep yeah. boop robot. And at this point, I think that there's a lot more celebration for creativity, for informality in how people approach marketing and a lot more personal in nature too. Mm -hmm. So if that's like the, what is it? The Duolingo <laughs> app commenting some random thing on some random TikTok. Mm -hmm. I love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> like it's so offbeat out of left field where like, if you think back 10 years ago, you would never see that. You would think someone made a mistake and logged into the wrong account. Yeah. So I just, I just love the individuality. And I think big retweets of Brie, I think from that breeds innovation and how brands can show up on a more unique basis. Yeah, that personification of of brands is is a big one. I think, you know, two examples, and I probably don't have this correct in terms of like chronologically when this happened, but like the two things I go to is like Wendy's on Twitter. That was kind of like the first time the, the big one, or I believe it was um in the Super Bowl when the lights went out and Oreo did the like dunk in the dark thing. Like yeah. and now I feel like a lot of brands like they're they're trying to copy it, but also like copying it and doing it well are two very different things. And so okay. that's interesting. And yeah, I want, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that progresses as as we move on when people, you know, we all know that there's a human behind corporate accounts. And sometimes now you get I go down rabbit holes where it's like, this is a big epic fail and mistake. Did they do this on purpose? Is there like a deeper meaning and like all that sort of thing? So yeah, I don't know. One of the last questions I want to ask here, for those who have listened to this podcast, they know I dropped out of university and never went back. And I've learned a lot through through reading and consuming information. So I always ask guests, how are you staying up to date on business and marketing? Who are you following? Who are you listening to in terms of podcasts? What are you reading? We'll start with you, Julia. I mean, for one, we just talked about TikTok. I genuinely <laughs> think it's one of the best resources out there. Not only if not, I'm not talking about like marketing talk or like mm. people who are on TikTok as like marketing professionals. I'm literally just talking about being on the platform. I, I think it's like the direct lifeline into how new marketing trends are made and built and how culture is evolving. It really is kind of the ground zero right now, at least. Um, so one, if you're not on TikTok, get on TikTok. I swear I'm not compensated or sponsored by TikTok. He's talking but... to me because I'm not <laughs> on TikTok. Two, candidly, just the, the trade pubs do it for me. I really like the ad weeks of the world. I love signing up to the newsletters um, from intelligence houses out there. So I love JWT intelligence who might be Wonderman Thompson intelligence at this point. Resources like that to me spark a lot of interest in creativity. Mm -hmm. But to me, the greatest inspiration and learning is seeing it in the wild via my socials. Yeah, it's interesting. The one thing I would I would add just to the TikTok thing, and I was just quickly searching for it here within our research. We did some research for a customer of ours last summer and hashtag learn on TikTok has over 115 billion video views as of June 2021. And we're talking about, you know, here's why ice melts this way or cooking or life hacks or science or fitness like that hashtag alone. And I think to your earlier point around TikTok kind of being this thing for kids now. So it's like, no, no, there's like so much other stuff on there. It's not just dance videos a la musically. It is very much, you know, a gathering, an entertainment gathering area 
um, for the internet where there's so many different topics. So yeah, RT on the old uh, learn on TikTok. I, I have no interest in buying a house anytime soon, but I know so much about it through the realtors <laughs> on my page. <laughs> I love it. I'm learning about Excel now. One of our other coworkers put in a TikTok about like different formulas and whatever in Excel. Yeah. And I was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> I need to know that. I, send me more because yeah. I need to know. <laughs> it's crazy how like you literally can learn how to some people can learn how to do their jobs on tiktok you totally. know and i know i'm not helping my case with julia by <laughs> praising tiktok and how i've learned on there and i'm not on there but you know whatever eventually i'll get on there but not today <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think the one the one thing i would i would add to that is for anybody e- either of you or anybody listening who haven't seen it the wall street journal did this really fascinating investigation into the tiktok algorithm and they actually created like 40 different accounts. And basically what they did was saw which way the algorithm would take these accounts down the rabbit hole. So they're like, okay, this is an account of a 35 year old female who loves Beyonce. And this is a 52 year old man who likes trucking or heavy machinery. And they were just like, okay, boom. And they like ran all these things. And then what they do is they visualized the algorithm and like topics that are popular that are core in the middle and then these like offshoots that are really niche it's a 13 minute youtube video i highly encourage watching it because it just it it taught me a lot about why i got interested in power washing videos (laughs) 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 and so i don't know if you haven't seen that check that out but brie i want to hear uh yeah who, who are you listening to reading staying up to date so interestingly enough, um, quite a few of my friends actually work in marketing. So yeah, <laughs> so honestly, we all just talk to each other about our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> but aside from that, on Instagram, I follow um, this woman now in California named Donya Taylor. She's really into social media marketing and marketing in general. She's kind of become like a social media guru. Um, I follow by Julian Cole on Instagram. He's kind of in the marketing world. Also, this is there's this account from this guy who's in the UK. His handle, I don't know his like his actual name, but his handle is the BKH. Okay. Um, and he mostly tweets about you know like social media platform updates and how people can integrate them, how he, he integrates them into his marketing and social media strategy. Um, so those are a couple. Aside from me, just like scouring the internet for <laughs> random things, like I'll just search Twitter of random things people people talking about about random things I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, and like my mentors and stuff will tell me, send me things that they've learned. And like I said, a lot of my friends are in marketing. So they're just like, yeah, this is what we were talking about at work today. And I'm just like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Let me go apply that to my job. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Last question. What's the base, best place for people to get a hold of you online? Julia, do you want to start? Sure. <laughs> I mean, I guess the common answer is LinkedIn. You can find me, Julia Schroeder. Uh, if you want to insta me, great. Um, it's at Julia Bulia with two A's at the end. And my Twitter is Julia Nofulia. But that's usually just me retweeting memes. Ooh. Feel free to DM me, though. <laughs> Gangs- gangster usernames. I love that. <laughs> Mine or not is interesting. Um, like Julia said, you can find me on Instagram, Brianna Bacon, B-R-E-A-N-A, one N, no I. Um <laughs> Also, if you want to follow me on Instagram, my handle is my first name, Brianna.jb. There's nothing really interesting on there. I just post pictures of myself all the time. Twitter, it's Brianna J. Bacon. Um, all, all one thing. A lot of that is me just 
retweeting foolishness and talking about succession. So <laughs> you can DM me there if you want to, um, or if you have you know anything you want to talk about succession or the West Wing or Bones. That's what I'm currently watching. Feel free to get in touch. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you very much both for taking the time. Really interesting to chat with you about fandom. I'm sure everybody listening definitely learned something and hopefully we'll get to speak again soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Oh, and if I'm sure you'll link it, but it's knowledgedrops.methodsandmastery.com. You can read a much more eloquent version of everything we talked about there. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll follow definitely... Methods and Mastery on social media as well, at yes. Methods and Mastery. Yes, follow, follow Methods and Mastery. We'll link that in the show notes below. And thank you both so much again for taking the time. For sure. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.